Let's jump into the word here this morning. Now, we have finished up our study in Matthew. You had Pastor Jimmy last Sunday, which was great. I enjoyed listening to his message. And you've certainly, I would think, picked up on a bit of a theme over these last several weeks. Uh, it is not entirely intentional in terms of our part. Some of it is based off of where Scripture has it, us, but it's, it's, it, it has been intentional to some degree. There has been a desire, I believe, put on our hearts by the Holy Spirit to focus and to emphasize aspects of mission, of fulfilling the Great Commission, of living on mission. Over the last two Sundays, specifically, we've considered the Great Commission from our conclusion of our study in the Gospel of Matthew uh, in chapter 28, wherein we read of the Great Commission itself, that moment prior to his ascension into heaven where Jesus commissions his disciples, saying in, in 28 verses 19 and 20, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you and lo I am with you always even until the end of the age and so uh, we, we've considered that and and we see in that passage there as we as we looked at two weeks ago we see there the authority of Jesus Christ in making this command and we see the instruction then to make disciples to teach the word of God to instruct others in the things that we ourselves have been instructed in we see the encouragement that he's with us when we go and do this work that's an incredible encouragement and, and so we know that this is the work and it's the process that we are all called to. But we need to, each of us, determine the way in which the Lord has called and gifted us to engage in that work. Jimmy touched on a little bit of that last week, talking about the various ways in which we get involved in gospel work, in mission work. As he unpacked some of these things, he, he brought up the idea of living life on mission Jimmy defined mission as honoring God wherever you are. And the importance of, of making Jesus, and, and, I, and I like this phrase, making Jesus unignorable in our various circles and spheres of influence. And the Sunday before last, I asked you the same question that I asked when we began our study in Matthew. I asked, is Jesus the king of your life and of your heart? And if he is, if you say, yes, Jesus is the king of my life, he's, he sits on the throne of my heart, well then, that comes with some expectation, foundationally, that we obey him, that we abide in him. Ultimately, everyone, all of creation is expected to obey him and, and will, but there are some, as we know, in this life who reject him. But, but those, those who surrender their lives to him, your obedience to him serves as evidence. It serves as, as fruit of salvation. And so we must be in the regular practice of evaluating, am I obeying? Am I obeying Him? And, and often obedience, you know, we, we can tend to want to make things practical and, and manageable for us. Uh, we, we, we oftentimes want to be able to, to check the box, as it were, what are the things that I do? How is it that I obey? Can I say, okay, I've, I've obeyed him here and I've obeyed him here. And, and over time, it's my opinion that this obedience, it often becomes something that you're, you're doing then. It's now, I, I'm doing these things to be obedient, but, but it becomes maybe something that's an, an act, a work, and maybe you think you're earning something, earning God's favor. But you see, our, our obedience, moreover, our faith, is to, be, is to be born out of what He has done. It's not about what we do. 
faithful obedience for a lifetime, and this is an incredible truth, will earn you no more favor than the day you surrendered your life to Him. Somebody that, that, that were today to surrender their life to Christ and immediately leave this place and to go home to be with Jesus would have an eternal inheritance, a lifetime with Him. You see, it was all done at the cross. It was all accomplished there. It's all a work of the Lord. It's not of us. But I think it's so easy for us to fall into this trap of we're doing things for the wrong reasons. And so we begin to then get these things backwards. And it's not about our acts. It's our works, as important as they are, are to be an outpouring of our salvation. And so what He wants, He wants to be able to pour into you. He wants to be able to fill you. And He's able to do that when we are surrendered to Him. When our, when our lives, and yes, our obedience follows this, but when our lives really, and our obedience, is really more about not, okay, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, but, but Lord, here I am. Here I am, Lord. Use me. Send me. Change me. Transform me. Coming to that place where you are really able to say, Lord, whatever you have, truly, whatever you have, and these are dangerous prayers. They are dangerous prayers to pray. But Lord, my life is yours. Do whatever you want with it, Lord. Not here, Lord, I'll do this or I'll do that. And this is often then what our fulfillment of the Great Commission starts to look like. It's this effort maybe to do some evangelism, but often in the strength of the flesh, as a work, not as a pouring out from a changed life, a life of faith. Today, we're, uh, I've had you turn already to Acts chapter 20. That'll be the main passage that we consider here this morning. Next week, we're going to get into the book of Romans. Okay, so we'll begin a study verse by verse through the book of Romans. We're going to continue this coming Wednesday. We'll get back into Genesis, our study of Genesis in our midweek. But today, today you get to be the recipients of what the Lord's doing here right now, okay? I was not ready to move on yet. There's just some things that, that I've been wrestling with. And, and uh, I don't know that I'll even be able to get it all out today, but I, but I trust that the Lord will work and, and do what He needs to do uh, despite me. Let's do this first. Turn to Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. <clears throat> some of you know this well. Some of you may have this memorized. I'm going to challenge you the way that I challenged the students at the 10th hour this last week before last. <clears throat> On Monday morning, I started with them. I said, you have to have this by tomorrow morning memorized. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And I went through and I had them share it back with me. Everybody pretty much got it, Okay. I'm going to challenge you guys the same way, although I don't get to show up and have you recite it for me tomorrow, but I'm going to trust that you guys are going to work on this, okay? Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That is what we are called to. We are called to be a living sacrifice for within the lens of the sacrificial system to say, my life, I will put it on the altar. It's yours, Lord. This is what I'm offering to you. Because the fact of the matter is, you don't have anything else to give Him. You do not have anything else to give Him. Nothing of value other than you. 
And that's what he wants. And for us to do these things, I taught on the topic of prayer with the 10th hour and we did a survey of scripture. Some of you have, uh, I went through it on a Wednesday night series. Really just a, a survey of the topic of prayer throughout the Old and New Testament, hitting on key verses that give us an understanding of what is prayer about. But the thing is, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to living life on mission, when it comes to our time in prayer, none of it works if we're not in a place of just truly being surrendered to Him. As far as our prayer life is concerned, unless we come and we pray from a place of surrender, then it is nothing more than a wish list from a self-righteous person trying to get their way done. We need to be surrendered. And so I'm going to challenge you. I want you to begin memorizing that passage. It's going to be, and, and those of you that have been with us for a while, you know I've, I quote this passage all the time. It's a life verse for me. It was instrumental in my own salvation. And I want you guys to memorize this. And then eventually, two years from now, we'll get to it in chapter 12. I don't know if it'll be that long. but So consider then for a moment. So I just wanted you to just look at that, make a note of it, memorize it. And consider then our study in Genesis, okay? So as, as, as I jump back here, just the, the idea of life on mission. In our study of Genesis and the life of Abraham, God called Abraham. He called him back in Genesis 12. And in verses 1 through 3, we, we read, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, God's plan of salvation began, began before creation, and it unfolded in the garden. We see aspects of it there, and then even through the flood and, and Noah. But, but here with Abraham, God begins building the nation of Israel, a people that are set apart for his name, that are to be a blessing to all nations, not just the nation of Israel, all nations. We're going to see aspects of that in, in Romans as well as we begin our study in Romans. Romans is a book about really the foundations of the faith. It's an incredible book of apologetics defending the faith, but we're going to see also Israel's role in salvation. We're going to see Israel in light of the, of the church. And so here God begins building the nation of Israel. And through Abraham would come our Savior. Jesus would come through his line. And, and God works in Abraham's life. And really one of the last major recorded acts of Abraham's life was in Genesis 22. We considered it recently. And God's call to Abraham to be willing to offer Isaac to him. Abraham's only son whom he loved. Was he willing to give him to God? Would he willingly sacrifice him? And we know that God did not ultimately ask that of him. But Abraham was willing. He trusted. He had faith that if he gave him his son, if he sacrificed his son, that God would raise him from the dead. Even though he had no knowledge of resurrection at that time, he was confident because of the promise that God had made. And so it was a great demonstration of faith. And in that story, as we considered it in our midweek service, throughout the rest of Scripture, what is spoken of is, is not how Abraham's willing offering of Isaac mirrored that of Jesus on the cross, though it did. We see the gospel clearly in it. But what's mentioned consistently throughout Scripture is Abraham's faith. It's the life of faith that he lived that others around him could see. Because at this point in his life, he was a surrendered man. You see, in this great act, God proved out Abraham's faith. He tested his faith. And his life of faith would then be an example to the rest of the world. Throughout history, his life would be a demonstration of trust in the one true God. 
even in the most difficult of circumstances. As we think about surrender, you may be saying, Pastor Brennan, you've, you've asked this question a lot. This idea of, is, is, is Jesus the king of your life? Are you surrendered? Are you, are you living in obedience? And you're right, I do. I, I've asked that question a lot as of late. But listen, what you must understand is that it, as much as it's for you, it's for me. But furthermore, the aim for a pastor beyond foundationally sharing the gospel is to present a mature body of believers at the Lord's coming or when, when the Lord should call me home. It's a responsibility that I bear that's biblical. That's not me saying today that all of you are immature believers, no. But we must be in the process of maturing. We must continually be growing. Paul writes of this in Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. He says, until we all come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. What Paul is saying here is he says, I want the body to function well. I want it to be mature. I want it to be working together to accomplish that which it was created for. I want us mature. I want to be mature. I want us ready for what may lie ahead. For us to be ready means that we are surrendered to Him. That we're living a life of faith. I want you to be honest this morning. Do you find yourself like the Apostle Paul in Philippians in chapter 3, verses 9-11, through 11, that your desire is to be found in Him, not having your own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that you may know Him and the power of His resurrection. But not just that. Everybody wants the power of the resurrection. He also says in the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means you may attain to the resurrection from the dead, is that you? Is that us? Do we find ourselves saying, Lord, I just want to know You more. I want to know You more. And if that means, Lord, that I know Your power, but I also know Your suffering, then so be it, Lord. I want to know You. That You're in pursuit of Him. That you have a daily thought of, of, of Lord, I want to I grow in my knowledge of you. I want to I I go deeper. I want you to transform my heart, Lord. Change me. And if that's you, if, if you're on that path right now, praise God, keep it going. Keep seeking. Keep seeking Him and Him alone. And, and listen to that voice. Draw close. Practice being obedient to Him as He, as he speaks to you. But here's the thing. It's an easy thing, easy uh, perhaps being a relative term, to be here each week and to consider the truths of Scripture and the importance of sharing the gospel and to convince yourself that you're living a life of faith, but you're not. Now, this may not be that you, I'm not suggesting necessarily that you're not saved, but rather it could be that you're still just functioning as a baby Christian in that baby Christian phase. Or it could be that you, you've not really given your life to Christ. We must ask ourselves, what does my life look like? What does my life sound like? What does my life look like come Monday? Maybe even lunch on Sunday. Sometimes it doesn't take too long. What does it look like throughout the week? 
What would the people around me say? What would people who, if they had, if they had cameras into my, into my house, what would they see? And I'm not just talking about the basics here of what you say, your, your language, or the music, or the, the shows, or whatever. I'm talking about how you're living your life. What even of, of, of the trials that come your way, difficulties that you face in life, because I know there's people sitting in this room, you're facing difficulties, real things, real trials. How are you handling them? Those that know you and know what you're going through, how are you handling them? Circumstances that you're facing. Is there a demonstration of your faith and confidence in God and his provision? How about your faithfulness in demonstrating the love and, and mercy of Christ to your neighbors, to your family, to your coworkers? What is our life communicating here in Acts? In chapter 20, if you'd read along with me here, beginning in verse 17, we read from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. What's happening here is, is uh, Paul, he has made his way back to Ephesus. Uh, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He, he's believing that this will be his final opportunity to see those that he loves dearly here in Ephesus. He had spent a good deal of time with them on some of his earlier missionary journeys. He knows based off of what the Holy Spirit's confirmed in his own heart and confirmed through other people, that what awaits him in Jerusalem are chains, imprisonment, persecution, and likely his death. I think he probably thinks his death is sooner than what it is. Persecution certainly finds him very quickly. And so this is a heartfelt visit with a church that he loves very much. And, and, and so here he, he's coming to meet with them. And so in verse 18, and when they had come to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. He says, the only thing that I know is that suffering awaits me. But none of these, verse 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God and indeed now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Let's break this down a bit here in verses 17 and 18 here. We see that Paul is making his way towards Ephesus. He's called for the elders. He's called them to come and meet him sort of out away from the city. I firmly believe, though the scripture doesn't tell us as much, that he knows if he'd have gone into the city, he'd have been there for a long time. We've all experienced that, right? You're going to see some people you love. You're thinking, hey, meet me out here because if I come inside, man, I'm staying, right? We're making dinner. <clears throat> Verse 18, and they came to him, right? And, and he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came, in what manner I always lived among you. Paul here is able to say, look at my life. Look at how I lived among you. Paul is not Jesus. Paul himself says, I was the chief of sinners. Paul knows the grace that's been demonstrated towards him. The, the point is, he's no different than us. Yet he's able to say with confidence here, look how I've lived my life. How I lived among you. He gives description of that that he served the Lord with all humility. 
with many tears. And this is an important one here in light of what we're talking about today because here he says, there were tears. I've often in my own life gotten confused to the idea that not being moved by circumstances means that I just have to be happy and joyful all the time. And that's not the case. A right perspective and a right understanding of what God is doing in a faith in Him doesn't mean that you don't grieve. doesn't mean that you don't lament. doesn't mean that there's not sadness. But he goes on to say, I kept back nothing that was helpful, but I proclaimed it to you. I taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews, also to Greeks, repentance. And this is what he was teaching, repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He was preaching the gospel. He says, I gave you the gospel. I held back nothing that was helpful. And I can't help but ask myself and would challenge you to do the same. Is are we living our are we living the Christian life in front of people? Are we taking the opportunity to live this life of faith in front of people? Consider our world for a moment. COVID's still a thing. Not done yet. Right? Say whatever you want about it. Everybody has their opinions about what's going on, right? But here's what we do know. People today, they're living in fear still. There might be be some who are here this morning and you just sort of ventured out with a little bit of fear. But you said, I'm going. There might be some of you that are watching online right now and it may be for very good reason. It may be rooted in wisdom. It may be for some other reason entirely that I'm not even mentioning this morning. But there may be some watching this morning. You're watching and you're in fear. You're living your life in fear. We know that our world is full of it. And it's not just COVID. It's the continued acts of violence in our schools and in our workplaces. It's continued accounts of racism and just the sinfulness of our world and our country. It's ever on display. This will be some of what we consider in our study of Romans. If you're not familiar with Romans, just read chapter one. I'm going to get in some trouble. Okay? But he says, you, Christian, as we think about all that we're seeing, and we might be, we might be tempted to ask ourselves, what's God doing about this? He says, I got you. I got the church. He says, I've chosen you, Christian. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. He didn't save you so that you could be comfortable. He saved you so that he, he, you could tell others what he's done in a great demonstration of love and mercy and grace, God saved you not because you deserved it, not because you were so special, but because he loves you and because he wants to use you, because he wants to make you a special people. I asked the 10th hour students a couple, when I was there with them, and I said, what have you heard this week? Romans 12, 1 and 2 was on there. So good, good job. <laughs> what else? It's not about us. It's not about us. It's not about you, Christian. Right now, especially right now, it is a time for us to be thinking so much more about our role as believers in a frightened and hurting world. Some people have all their predictions, and a lot of them false teachers and false prophets about what COVID's all about. I know this much, though, based off of what I know about God, that he is in control, and he could have prevented COVID from happening, and he didn't. Why? Do you know that throughout history, Christian historians agree to this point, throughout history specifically related to pandemics, that during times of pandemic throughout world history, the church flourished. 
do you not think that maybe he wants to do that again? But throughout history, as the church was flourishing, it was Christians who were stepping into the pandemic. I'm not condemning this morning those who through exercising wisdom have withdrawn in certain areas. I'm not going into that territory. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I am challenging each and every one of us, including those who through wisdom have withdrawn from certain areas, to evaluate, is my life on display right now? Am I still influential in some way, shape, or form? Am I doing what God has called me to do? Or am I hiding in fear? Because our lives, how we're living our lives each day, what that communicates to those around us about what we believe about our faith, whether we have any faith, whether we have any hope at all, the world needs to know that. They need to see that. And so Paul, he says, see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing. Oh my gosh. How many of you like to go anywhere not knowing where you're going or what's going to happen? There's like one of you here that's just kind of that free, right? The rest of us want to know something. And some of you want to know a lot, right? About every detail. You know who you are. I'm one of them. Not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except this, there's only one thing I know that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulation await. Here we go. You see, Paul, first off here, he had a sense of what he was bound to do. I think that's missing a lot today. This sense of, I'm bound to this. I know I can't escape this. So much of what we do though the Lord blesses it, I think is oftentimes just rooted in sort of our day-to-day decisions and not truly a sense of, I can't escape this. I know that the Lord has called me to this. He was firmly locked in on his calling and how the Lord was directing him. And this came, where did that come from? From regularly seeking the Lord in prayer, asking for wisdom, allowing the Lord to speak, and then listening. And the implication then is that the Lord didn't give him every detail. Paul says, I don't know what's going to happen other than it seems, based off of what I keep hearing, that it's going to be hard. But that doesn't mean he's not still called to go. We, and this is a general we, in this country have been so conditioned to think that God is about our personal comfort and happiness. God is not concerned about your happiness as much as he is concerned about your holiness and the life that you live as a representative of him before a lost and dying world. And so, yes, I would submit to you that he will do whatever is necessary to set you apart and to make you holier. What Paul understands, as do others, and what we need to understand is that the hardships and the trials in our life are not necessarily these unavoidable aspects of a fallen world. I think a lot of times as Christians we come and we encounter trials and we just want to chalk it up to, well, that's just the product of a sinful world. And in some respects that may be true, but saying that robs God of his sovereignty. Rather, I think there's times when we can approach trials and tribulations and challenges in our life as difficult as they are, but see them with the right perspective that it's a tool of God's grace to make us into the people he's created us to be so that more people would come to know him. Peter writes of this in 1 Peter in chapter 1 and verses 6 and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These trials, if necessary. But you see, we so often encounter these various trials, and I'm not saying they're easy, but God never said they would be. It's false teachers in our world today who have suggested that we're created for a, a peaceful life a happy life, a prosperous life on this side of heaven. You see, we face these trials and we try sometimes, oftentimes, to pray our way out of them. And sometimes, yes, God delivers you from it, but sometimes he delivers you through it. But in either scenario, he's with you just the same. That's a promise. The question is, are we willing to surrender to it? Are we like Jesus, who our example in the garden, are we willing to pray, not my will, but yours be done? Be honest, sure. God, may this cup pass for me. Lord, I don't like this. This is hard. This is difficult. I don't want to go through this any longer. But Lord, if it's your will to continue, then I'm going to trust that you're with me. Your will be done. Or as the disciples asked him, Jesus, teach us to pray. And he said, pray in this manner, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Or as I shared earlier, do our prayers become more the ramblings and wish lists of self-righteous people, treating God more as Santa Claus than the Lord of our lives? Because to truly pray your will, not mine, is an act of surrender. And many of us, we're not really living a life of faith because we're not surrendered. We continue to live our lives under the false impression that our life is ours. We continue to pray for our will, not his. And friends, the greatest freedom in life comes when we realize that our lives are not our own, but that they belong to him. That is freedom. To become a slave of Christ is true freedom. What so often keeps us from that place of true surrender? I would submit to you fear. Fear. It comes in a variety of forms. Consider though what Paul says next, verse 24, but none of these things move me nor do I count my life dear to myself. Now, in most translations, this statement, but none of these things move me, is not included. The first part of verse 24 is simply rendered oftentimes, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. But I do like this translation as it prompts me to consider in my own life what moves me, what shakes my foundation. Guys, I would share with you that that especially even over the last several months, there are things in my life that have moved me. I have been moved far too often. I've been shaken far too often. In Paul's case, he had just said, I don't know what awaits me, but it doesn't seem good, at least from a worldly perspective, and I paraphrase. And so Paul is really, he's saying his goodbyes to the people he loves. And he's able to say that these circumstances, they don't move him. Why? Because he says, I don't consider my life to be that valuable compared to what God wants to do. Now, did Paul just have sort of a twisted view of his own life? A sort of self-deprecating, devaluing of life? Like, ah, what is life? It's not that big of a deal. No. Rather, he had a perfect perspective on life. Consider his words in 2 Corinthians 5, 1-8. For we know that if our earthly house... This tent is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. Listen, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God 
who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And so you see, Paul had no fear of death, for he knew that death, mortality, had been swallowed up by life. There's really no such thing as death for the believer. But furthermore, he says, so that I may finish my race and to finish it with joy in the ministry, which isn't mine, but that which I received from the Lord Jesus. The implication here being the the thing he's called me to, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, that's what drives me. You see, what we find here is that he knows, he understands there's a race he's running, something he's called to. And for Paul, he will cross that finish line. And he's going to do so with joy. There is confidence in that. And I think then a confidence also that God has him until that time. For Paul, though he knows that chains await him, though he's thinking that his death is probably near, there isn't a question in his mind about whether or not his death is untimely. But he knows that when he's appointed to die, he will. Because he serves a sovereign God. Because he knows that not only has death been defeated, but there is an understanding of the safety that we know in a sovereign God. Another teaser for Romans in Romans in chapter 8 in verses 31 and following. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, as we think about this, and I'll start to bring this to a close. I know I'm over. Consider this, Christian. I want to encourage you with this because we need, these things need to make their way deep into our hearts and our minds. Consider what Luke records. And if you're taking notes, write this down. Luke 12, 6 and 7. This is Jesus. He says, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Guys, he knows every hair on your head or the absence thereof. Mine used to be right here, trust me, so I'm not. He knows. Are you not more valuable? If he knows whether a bird drops dead out there, and and they do, right? You come up upon a bird and you're like, what? That thing just dropped from the sky. It's biblical. And he knew it. You're more value than that. But yet we walk around in such fear. Or elsewhere in in, in Acts in chapter 17 and verses 26 and 27, it says, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. It says they have pre-appointed times and boundaries. Oh, the arrogance of us 
to think that we are beyond the hand of a sovereign God. Listen, for Paul and for us, there is not a reason to fear. Not one reason. Not one reason at all when we respond to His call and when we place our lives in His hands. We only have reason to fear and far greater reason to fear when we think that somehow our life is in our own hands because then we'll live that way. Scripture's filled with accounts of people fearful of His call, reluctant to trust, but in time they did. Paul David Tripp writes this. It was too good of a quote to pass up. He says, Each moment of fear, each act of refusal was an act of spiritual irrationality. Each fearful person had been invited to be part of the massive history and globe-spanning work of the kingdom of God. The one who called them created the world and holds it together by His will. He has power over all things spiritual and physical. He rules every situation, location, and relationship in which His call is to be followed. He is amazing in His wisdom, abundant in His grace, boundless in His love. He is saving, forgiving, transforming, and delivering. What He says is always best. What He requires is always good when he calls he goes with you what he calls you to do he empowers by his grace when he guides he protects he stands with power and faithfulness behind every one of his promises he has never failed to deliver anything that he has promised there is simply no risk in answering the call of the king of kings that is my god that's my god do you know him and have you surrendered your life to him Friends, do you believe that a sovereign God holds your life in His hands? Yes, we exercise wisdom and care for our bodies with the intent to prolong our lives. The question becomes, to what end? Ultimately, He is in control. What He wants is for us to live our lives in a way that brings Him glory. But that requires surrender. And far too often, our fears prevent us from surrendering. Paul says, and indeed now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I'm going to invite the worship team up to close us in a, just a short song. Can you say that? If tomorrow is your last day, can you say I'm innocent of the blood of all men. I've done my part. I've fulfilled my calling. Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, Yet there used to be a gospel in the world which consisted of facts which Christians never questioned. There was once in the church a gospel which believers hugged to their hearts as if it were their soul's life. There used to be a gospel in the world which provoked enthusiasm and commanded sacrifice. Tens of thousands have met together to hear this gospel at peril of their lives. Men to the teeth of tyrants have proclaimed it and have suffered the loss of all things and gone to prison and to death for it, singing psalms all the while. Is there not such a gospel remaining? And friends, I would submit to you this morning that it scares me to preach because I realize I must practice it. And truly, as the Lord works these truths into my heart, I find myself saying, Lord, please don't ask this of me. But my fear of what surrender and obedience may bring is always tempered by the truth that I have a sovereign God who loves me and who will be with me. And while that does not mean the promise of a life without suffering, it does mean an eternity without it.
And until then, I'm called to be faithful and living a life that proves the triumph of the Christian faith. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, if I might be so bold as to pray on behalf of each of us here, as those of you who are so inclined to agree with me, Lord, far too often I count my life far dearer to myself than I should. Far too often, Lord, I lack a sense of the race that I'm running. Consider it my own, that it's up to me. Lord, I pray that you'd call us to a place where because of our confidence and our faith in you, we could say, my life is not dear to me. Not compared to you, Jesus. Not compared to what you've called me to. And Lord, I know it. That thing that you've called me to, I know it. I know it deep within my soul. And I cling to it. No matter how hard it is, I, I, I can't break away from it. I'm bound to it. Oh, that we would have such an awareness of the things of you, Lord. And I trust that we can. So, Father, help us to see through the, the things of this world, to see through the distractions in our culture, Lord, to see through the comforts, the privileges, and the pleasures that are so readily available to us, to lay hold of that which you have for us, Lord. Be willing to set aside everything for it. What an army of Christians we would be. Lord, do that work, Lord. Continue to do that work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.